How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 185 of X-Lapsed, which, for the time being, for folks who follow this program day-to-day, or, I guess, in real time, it's going to be the final episode for, well, a little while. Not not too terribly long. I'm uh, kind of at the mercy of, uh, of, of, not UPS, the other one, FedEx. That's who I'm at the mercy of here. Um, I mentioned this in a previous episode, but uh, I received a message from my comics distributor, DCBS, that uh, due to a diamond uh, little kerfuffle, the shipment was being pushed back a few days. Now, uh, normally that wouldn't be too big a deal, but, uh, well, we're caught up on this program, so it kind of is a big deal. I'm waiting on the April books to show up, and so we got... uh, Well, we've got nothing to talk about after today um, until these books arrive, and I don't know uh, what kind of ETA to give it because there are times that DCBS shipments show up in two days, and then there's times where they show up in two weeks. So uh, we will play it by ear, and uh, I assure you as soon as they arrive, we will uh, resume, I think, with an issue of Excalibur. So uh, I apologize for the delay, and I apologize that when we do come back, it'll be Excalibur. But uh, with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, let's get into today's issue. Now, we are back with the flagship book, or at least allegedly the flagship book. This is X-Men Volume 5, number 19. Had a May 2021 cover date. Stories called Out of the Vault, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Mahmoud Azrar. Colors, Sonny Go, letters VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, edits Bisa White-Sabolsky, cover price $3.99, and this one went on sale the very last day of March, March 31, 2021, which is why this is the last book we'll be covering until that shipment comes in. So let's start with the cover. I uh, don't care for it. <laughs> I really can't explain why, but there's there's something about it that bugs me. I've been looking at this cover for a very long time now. I think it might be Serafina's face. It's just very, very unpleasant to look at. She just has a very... Um, I don't know, just like a snarl on her face that is uh, not becoming, I guess. So let's get into the book. We open with a graphic page. Hmm, not exactly the same thing as an info page, but not entirely different either. And we're going to see a bunch of these today. Now here, we see three timelines, and one for each of our Vault team members. It's left pretty nebulous, with no actual markers of time, just events... Uh, And the only event on this page is that our heroes entered the vault. And uh, we're going to find out why there are no actual markers of time as we work our way through this. So then, we get to comics content, and we pick up right where we left off last issue. And it's not often I get to say that about a Hickman story, is it? He's usually one and done for these flagship issues, so this is uh, 
This is a bit of an anomaly, isn't it? Now, this is in the wake of that one child of the vault blowing everybody up real good. And we've got our heroes, right? We've got our three heroes, and they start off as skeletons because they've been blown up. However, they begin to regenerate to their normal forms, and this is likely due to Laura's regenerative, easy for me to say, abilities, Darwin's adaptability ability, and Sink's power to piggyback. You know, once they're back in their flesh and, flesh and blood form, they run deeper into the city as our narrator, who is Sink, he informs us that the first 50 years in the vault were the longest. So uh, we're playing with, uh, with time distillation and uh, wackiness today. From here, it's our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters are X-23, being referred to as X-23 and not Wolverine, Darwin, and Sink. Then another graphic page. And boy, this one is jam-packed. Now we're going to go through these timelines here. Now we start at the top, we work our way to the bottom of the page here. It's not immediately apparent that that's the direction we're going. I think that's just the way it's going to be. So, we start at the top here, and our heroes, they create a makeshift command center somewhere in the vault's outer ring. They would attempt to make contact with the outside world, but that would be impossible. They also attempt to synchronize the time differences within the vault. This is also unsuccessful, and, you know, we're going to find out here, thanks to Darwin, he deduces that the passage of time here is not consistent to begin with, so there isn't any sort of accurate comparison to be made to the outside world. Like, for example, we can't say, like, for every Earth minute, one year passes inside the vault, because there's no concrete consistency, it's just different. Then, there's a time debt inversion, um, whatever that means, that's a way too high concept for a, uh, for a modest bumpkin like me. Um, then the recon team runs into the child called Horador. This is a teleporter whom Sink borrows the powers of. And they keep Horador's DNA in a stasis pod for potential for future use. So this is a new thing that Sink is doing here, keeping DNA of the children so he can access and piggyback their powers. We found out last issue that uh, Sink's piggybacking abilities aren't just for mutants anymore. He can basically piggyback any superhuman, or at least the children. Our team then successfully maps Quadrant 1 of the vault, and then 2, and then 3, then they deduce the location of the city brain and the child replication center. Then the mutant incursion is detected, and uh, that's where we leave this page off. And I gotta ask, isn't it great that we're not actually wasting comic book pages telling this comic book story? <clears throat> Meanwhile, X-Men 12 and 14 use like 80% of the same art. as uh, Hickman style. Hickman style. Gotta, can't say anything about it. Back to actual comics here. Now, the recon team does a bit more urban exploration. Darwin adapts the, to this, like, really nasty cluster of glowing bumps on his back, which somehow masks the mutants as children of the vault so they can come and go more freely without being, you know, just spotted. It's really disgusting, though. Um, there really had to have been a more aesthetically pleasing way to depict this, but uh, what are you going to do? They're able to glean here a surface-level understanding of what the vault is. Uh, the children, they lay dormant for two months, and then they grow for two more months, and the cycle repeats over and over again. Guess what? Graphics page, because why the F not? The recon team is able to evade, likely to Darwin's nastiness, so they are able to stay under the radar. 
Darwin's DNA is then preserved by the city itself. We're going to see that play out in a little bit. The heroes set up a second command center. We get tactical assault by mutant recon team, whatever that's supposed to imply. The team then learns about the child classes and evolutionary plan. And with this knowledge, they, they attempt to escape the vault because that was their mission here. They had to learn what the children were up to. And uh, so with this information at hand, uh, the, our trio figured, hey, we can go now. But they can't. They were unsuccessful in their attempt to escape. They discover a, a vault shield. Now, this was erected after their arrival. And uh, from what we hear, it would burn them and remove their mutant abilities if they were to pass through them, so probably not the best thing to do. Multiple breach attempts fail, and so we tell that our team is trapped. Then the team fractures. Now here's where our timelines begin to stylistically spread out on the page. It's not so much a splintering, it's just that Laura, Darwin, and Everett's respective lines grow further apart on the page. We hear that Wolverine hunts alone, so we can assume she's on her lo- all by her lonesome. Sink constructs a stasis system to preserve child DNA. Thus far, he has Fuego, who is the Ghost Rider-looking goofball, Horador, the teleporter from earlier in this issue, and a pair of new characters, Diamante and Madre. Now, Darwin evolves and adapts himself for isolation, and then our recon team reforms. They plan a city assault, and they fail. Next up, we get back to comics, and uh, we actually, in these comic pages, we recap a bit of the timeline that we just read like two seconds ago, and it's here that we meet Madre. Now, Madre is a strange case. We don't know a whole heck of a lot about her, but we do know that while the rest of the children are in stasis, she's awake, and vice versa. Not really sure why. Uh, Now, Sink draws a comparison between the Vault and Krakoa's own resurrection protocols, which... I'm pretty sure it was an observation we made last issue, so get get with the program already, Everett. So, now here's the gimmick for our recon team. They know they've been found out, and so they attempt to fake their own deaths, right? We saw how the timelines kind of split off in the graphics page here. This is going to explain that away. Now, they set off a big explosion, and they leave Darwin's forearm, like literally a body part, Uh, behind in the wreckage to further prove that they'd been blown to bits. Now, this turns out to be a very bad idea indeed. That is, leaving Darwin DNA behind, which we'll soon find out why. Now, the recon team then finds their way into the stasis center, where we see a bunch of the children slumbering in fluid-filled tubes. One of those children is the other new one, Diamante, and he kind of looks at first blush like he's wearing one of Professor X's Cerebro helmets, but it's actually just that his head has like a diamond-filled dome atop it. Now, Diamante's deal is that he is the living repository of vault history. And so, if Sink were to cop his powers, he'd learn everything about everything. And so, it's time for a trip down memory lane. We see that mother brain-looking thing, which I guess is the city brain. Then, we learn a little bit about the first generation of the children of the vault, or Everett does anyway. Now, these are the ones that uh, the Mike Carey originals here from the Supernova storyline back in the long ago. The second generation are of the children are the ones that I think we've been dealing with in this volume so far. Uh, they're the ones who were captured by Orcus, if you remember them. The third generation would be the final generation, the ones who would be ready to take over the world when released. Now, this is when the recon team realized that they knew enough and tried to escape the vault. 
And of course, like we just read two minutes ago, we know that they're going to be unsuccessful. We then jump ahead a hundred years. One hundred years. Ev, Laura, and Darwin have all, well, not so much aged, but matured. Now, Sink has a beard, Laura has a white streak in her hair, and uh, Darwin is spiky. He's got spikes. They attempt to attack the city brain, and they lose. And they're separated, with the children capturing Darwin and Laura. Darwin for reasons that will soon be very, very apparent. Well, we've had about three or four pages of comics. I think it's probably about time to get back into the graphic pages here, so let's do it. Sink attempts to rescue his teammates, and these attempts fail. And so Darwin and X-23 remain prisoners. Sink, now on his own and without his teammates to power piggyback, finds himself actually aging. He was, you know, around characters who didn't age normally, so he was able to kind of, you know, glean off of them and stay young. So now he knows he's got to escape the vault before long because he's getting older. He ambushes a child called Terramoto. Not sure who that one is, but they appear to have earth-moving powers. He then collects accessories in order to survive a dormant period. Now, Sink gambles that not only is time inconsistent here in the vault, it's also inconsistent in different areas of the vault itself. So, in certain areas of the vault, it might be a year. In other places, it might be a day. So, he uses the earth-moving powers that he's taken from, uh, whoever that was, uh, Terramoto, to tunnel to an area directly below the vault, and he waits there for one week. Turns out, a week in the underground is equal to a hundred years topside. And so, for all intents and purposes, he re-emerges a century later, having only aged a week. After this, Everett is able to rescue Wolverine, but at this point, Darwin's timeline ends on our, on our page here, and we'll soon see why. Wolverine and Sink then search for Darwin. They capture Serafina, and Sink uses his powers to copy hers, after which they discover the location of their missing friend. Back to comics. Now, as Sink prepares to rescue Laura, he thinks back to his childhood, and he describes it as a time where he was posing as a human. I don't know if that's important or relevant, but uh, I thought it was worth mentioning. He rescues Laura using an explosive spear or something like that, and they're able to escape. We see them huddled up together, so we might assume that there's a bit of a romance developing here. We see them capturing and killing Serafina Mark III, and discovering where they are keeping Darwin, and so that's where they head. <sighs> Graphics page! We got another one. We got another one. Now, Darwin's timeline restarts when Sink and Wolverine discover his location. Then there's a bit of a revelation about the Diamante City Data Corps alignment. It's everything that the city has learned since the mutant incursion, basically. Now, we learn that pre-Krakoa, the children were projected to be able to take over the Earth with their third generation. Right? Post-Krakoa, they realize they're going to need to cook just a little bit longer and will require a fourth generation. Now, I hear you asking, how in the hell are they planning on doing that? Well, you know, we might assume that they just do the same thing that caused them to go from Gen 2 to Gen 3. But now nah, we got a better reason. They've got Darwin. Now, first they had his forearm, and were able to deduce that he was the key to their next evolution, and then they went ahead and captured the man himself, and spent decades experimenting on him until they unlocked access to the way to become the fourth generation of children. After which, Darwin's timeline ends again. He's been atomized, basically. 
and our remaining reconners attempt to escape using the DNA of Merva Mervavon. Okay. Mervavon, Mervavon, easy for me to say, is described as a child disruptor. Okay, then. Back to comics. So Laura and Everett rush toward that vault shield. Now, just as advertised, it burns them and strips them of their powers. Uh, They're nude and bald, but they still have their eyebrows. That's probably for uh, improved emotability. I don't know. Then the children show up. Laura tells Sink to run for it. She's going to hold off the children while he escapes back to reality with the information Professor X needs. Sink manages to escape the vault and mentally reach out to Xavier before he's overwhelmed and killed by the children. Flip the page and, uh, well, next we know, Sink is in the hatchery being resurrected. Xavier informs him that he was able to back up his memories in the moments between escaping the vault and being killed by the children, so this mission wasn't all for nothing. It also means that Everett remembers being alive for many, many, many years. Next to him, Darwin and Laura are also being resurrected. And uh, it's a good thing we already retconned Laura into not being a clone of Wolverine, right? Because otherwise that might be sticky. Now we wrap up with Sink making uh, the goo-goo eyes at Laura, but she ain't having none of it. We can assume that she and Darwin do not remember their time in the vault. It's worth noting, immediately upon resurrection, Laura already has her adamantium claws, so I guess maybe they injected into the gold ball? Or I, I don't know. Uh, we know... Uh, we know that Forge has that molten pool of the stuff. Uh, maybe they, maybe she already took a dip in it. I don't know. But that is where we end it. Next episode, we have a most malicious issue of Excalibur. So let's talk about this. Um, we're uh, expo- exploring some weird angles for the resurrection protocols here. Um, in this case, uh, the potential loss of shared memories dependent on when one's last Cerebro backup was, right? We get this impression that there was a romantic entanglement between Laura and Everett. Only one of them remembers it, though. Of course, this is all undermined by the fact that we never actually see Laura and Everett being in love. I mean, we get a line on the graphics page saying that they were that they endured together, and we do get that one panel of them huddled up together. But, I mean, for a story bit... Uh, that should have been more tragic and had more of a sad feeling, it kind of doesn't. This is like someone telling you the story of a time something profound happened in their life. Sure, I mean, you can get the broader aspects, right? But unless you see it and experience it with them, there's going to be a certain level, no matter how big or small, a level of disconnect. So it's like I see Laura and Everett, And it's clear at the end of the issue that he remembers their time together and she does not. So I want to care about it, but I don't. You know, let's let's hop across the street over to DC Comics here. Now this, if they play this out the way that they might, it could go the way of the uh, relatively recent, uh, the post-rebirth Wally West and Linda Park relationship. Now for folks unaware, Wally and uh, Linda were married in the... uh, pre-Flashpoint era, Wally remembers that. She does not. Now, it's a bit of a creepy thing, yes, um, because, you know, you have someone just saying, hey, you know, I mean, just picture it. Play it out in your own mind here. Someone comes to your door 
you know, in the next 10 minutes and says, hey, remember me? We were married in another universe, another lifetime. You'd have them committed, right? So it is a little bit creepy, but we're, 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 we're observers to this. We can actually feel the tragedy, tragedy of it because we lived it with them. We lived it with Wally. We saw, I mean, we, see, we saw them meet. We saw them date. We saw them exchange Christmas presents. We saw them get married, have children. We have a reason to care and be invested in whether or not they're able to find their way back to one another. We don't quite get that here. You know, um, Hickman is, uh, I mean, and for all the guff that I'll give him about info pages, graphics pages, uh, kind of shallow um, characterization, uh, you know, trying to push forward the, you know, the high concept sort of ideas more so than actual characterization. I mean, he's very good at that stuff. He's very good at the high concept. He's a great idea guy, but... I mean, for things like characterization, for things like, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, street level sort of stuff here, uh, the mundane, he's definitely more of, uh, I guess, the opposite of show, don't tell. He, he tells, don't show, right? And, uh, and that's too bad. That really is too bad because, I mean, this relationship that might have spanned decades got one line on a, on a graphics page and one panel in the comic, so it's it's really hard to be invested. And I mean, <laughs> if we think about it in the grander scheme of this volume of X Men, uh, I feel like he's been so intent on wasting so much of our time throughout this volume that uh, there might have been some nice character moments, but you know, we just didn't get them because high concept. And uh, we'll just let the rest of the writers write about that in the books that uh, less people buy and less people read and less people are invested in. But, you know, I'd really like a reason to care about this relationship because it seems like it could be fun. And we know that they're both going to be on the uh, the new Krakow and X-Men team together. So there are possibilities there for, uh, for you know, further ramifications going down the line here. Now, with that out of the way, let's talk a little bit about the children here. Um, this is probably my main takeaway from this issue. And I have to ask the question here, is this another instance of our heroes, an attempt to stop something horrible from happening, happening, something that Mora may have foretold or just lived through in different lives? Is this a case where they actually, instead of, instead of stopping it, they more or less expedite or worsen their own fates? Very early on uh, in this, uh, the Hoxpox era here, we saw with the Orcus Assault, Back during the Hoxpox, you know, miniseries or event That Xavier and Mora sent the team to the Mother Mold In order to stop Nimrod from happening And we find out that, uh, well, it turned out that all it did was speed up the process So, um, not, not much help Not a net positive there, right? Now here, our heroes were sent into the vault to get, you know, data, details And what they wind up doing is giving the looming threat of post-humanity the potential to become even stronger with their fourth-generation evolution in leaving Darwin's DNA there. Now, if that is the case, I, I give it two thumbs up. I like that as an idea because, I mean, we're not going to be reading this uh, era of X-Men for 100 years, right? So we need Nimrod to happen sooner than that. We need post-humanity to pose a threat sooner than... 
you know, X to the third power, right? We, we can't wait a thousand years to get there. And so if this is the plan to, you know, bring these threats closer to now so they can defeat them, I, I'm definitely down with that. I think that's a great idea. And it doesn't feel like a, uh, like a cheat. Because, I mean, if a post-human threat shows up in the next year of publication time, we can call back to this moment here and be like, well, they had Darwin's DNA, and uh, the children were able to evolve and keep evolving and keep evolving because Darwin's whole gimmick is adapting to survive. So it makes perfect sense here. Also, with the Nimrod thing with the Orcus Forge, I mean, we don't want to wait forever to get to Nimrod. So if Nimrod shows up, of course, time travel is always a thing we can rely on, but... We can always just cycle back to, wait a minute, well, actually, in in destroying the Mother Mold, it just got, uh, what was it, Dr. Gregor? Was that her name? I haven't thought about her in many, many months now, but uh, she got to work on Nimrod, so I'm down with that. I'm definitely down with that. That said, um, don't really have a whole heck of a lot more to say about this issue. Um, I the, the, the overload of graphic pages here, um, it just makes it feel like like, this is something they realized they needed to get to before the Hellfire Gala, and it's like, oh, crap, how are we going to cram this much story into one issue? And so they uh, kind of went, you know, they kind of took the less scenic route and just just gave us an info dump, which, I mean, this isn't the first info dump we've gotten in the uh, the Hox, Pox, Docs, Rock, Socks books here. So it's just uh, par for the course. I, I would have appreciated... Um, Maybe a little bit more artwork, especially when we have an artist like Mahmoud Azrar, who is uh, fairly phenomenal. But um, overall, um, I gotta say I enjoyed talking about it more, a lot more, than I enjoyed reading it. It was a little bit of a chore to read, but I uh, had a good time talking about it, so uh, there's that. Now before we cut on out of here, we got to dip into the mailbag here. We got one letter today from our friend Evan. He's talking about... Well, he's actually talking about an issue of this very comic. He's talking about X-Men number 17. And he says, I like this issue. It made sense, to me anyway, for Deathbird to call in the X-Men to avoid an intergalactic incident. And though I may have misunderstood, I thought Oracle had scanned the staff, but Jean did things a little differently and discovered something she had missed. I can't disagree with other inconsistencies you pointed out, but I thought it was fun no- nevertheless. I also appreciated that Xandra and Deathbird, somewhat uncharacteristically, responded to the attempted coup with mercy rather than vengeance. Well, everything you say is true, but uh, I'm just beyond burnt out on the Shi'ar. I think uh, <laughs> I think it's just a knee-jerk thing where it's just like, I'm going to start gritting my teeth and, and balling up my fists. It's uh, just we've had so much of it. <laughs> we really have had just so much of it. And, uh, I mean, Oracle's powers, uh, I, you know, I... I didn't get that from the reading, that uh, she had scanned them already. I I could be mistaken. I may have glazed over. I don't know. Uh, Evan continues. I think one reason that I enjoyed this is that I read it kind of breezily and didn't delve too deep. And I missed a great point that you brought up. Maybe there is a parallel between the way the Shi'ar treat the Stagians and the mutant supremacy angle. Or at least how those in the know treat the rank and file. I just read it as boilerplate racism-classism commentary, but that angle adds depth and could make this more than a one-off. Hickman has laid some building blocks in the flagship title, but it feels kind of haphazard. It doesn't feel like they're building much. Yes, that's true. Um, like, uh, like we say, like almost every time we talk about a book with Hickman's name on it, um, great ideas. 
you know, the ideas are there, and uh, it's just that we, for every good idea that actually gets played out, uh, none of them really happen in this book. Um, this book, we don't see characters change, we just see them changed, right? Like, they, they, they're in this book, something happens somewhere else, they come back here, they're, they're different. But we don't actually see them going through it. It's, uh, it's one of the main criticisms that I have about the Teeny Howard Excalibur. So much of what happens, happens off-panel. And it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to, I, I guess, relate. It's hard to invest emotionally, uh, because we're just getting idea after idea after idea with, uh, just no, pl- no payoff here. It's like, uh, we're building, we're building a house out of mud bricks that, you know, the mud hasn't solidified yet. Right? It's just, it's just muck. And it, sure, it's getting higher every time you stack a brick on it, but it's like, we got to start doing something here. we got to start firming this up a little bit. And, I mean, uh, this is a long game, right? We know that this, uh, that this era is going to last at least three years. So maybe four is what, we're, is what we were told, I think, not too long ago. So we got time. we got time to play things out. I don't know that we have time for this many throwaways. but Because, uh, I mean... Like like we talked about during the episode here with uh, with X Men Seventeen, the Shi'ar look at the Stygians like the mutants of nowadays look at humanity as you know being inferior, and I mean that turns decades worth of X Men storytelling right on its ear and in a good way because it explores whole new avenues here, just a world that we never experienced at least not the prime Marvel universe. I'm sure there were what ifs and. Stuff like that, where the mutants were the, the you know the supreme uh, power in the uh, in the on the earth, and humans were you know, relegated to uh, to serfdom and uh, hiding, right? But here we're actually in the six one six here, and there's this like weird ethnocentrism, this Krakoan ethnocentrism, and it's uh, it's pretty neat. It's pretty neat, but again. It's idea after idea after idea. We're not building on it. We're just giving new ideas. So I don't have, I don't have confidence that it's going to be followed up on, or at least not in a satisfying way, and perhaps not even in the way that it was initially intended to play out. Because who knows? I mean, the story we just read today, um, the we're in the vault, right? They introduced the concept of the vault over a year ago. The the concept of X-23, Sink, and Darwin entering the vault a year ago. And it hasn't been mentioned since. Uh, what else? I mean, we've talked about Mora a lot, but she's shown up in, like, what, one, two panels since Powers of X number six, since the end of Hoxbox? Hey, what happened to Arako? Remember Arako? <laughs> that thing we built to for all those months? It's just somewhere. We're not following up on these things here, and I feel like... I feel like this run, or this this era, may be defined by the old, you know, famine to feast and back to famine again, because it's like we get stories that are kind of just there in our flagship book. I mean, the other books are, are really, really carrying the load here. But we're getting these stories that kind of waste time, and then we get excellent stories. And like we had the Mystique issue, we had the Crucible issue, we have great, great stuff, and then we have not-so-great stuff. It's not, it's the only thing consistent about it is it, that it's inconsistent. And I, it's like I worry that we're going to be treading water for all this time, just letting ideas simmer, and then all of a sudden it's going to be like, boom, 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 here's everything paying off. And then back to nothing. 
and then boom, 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 payoff, and then nothing again. I don't know. I, I, I don't know how uh, history is going to treat this era. I, I'm very... Um, I'm very curious to see how people look back on this uh, on this era when it's all said and done, because there are eras in the X Men that we look back on fondly. Um, the Morrison run, a lot of the Claremont stuff. Um, for me, a lot of the Lobdell stuff. Then there's eras that we we don't look back too fondly on, and I wonder where this is going to wind up falling in there. If if I were a betting man, I'd say people are going to wind up saying they loved it. It's going to be the old, uh, the old internet 11 out of 10 rating. But uh, when your honest opinion won't get you a whole bunch of uh, retweets and pats on the back, uh, that's, that's kind of when the honesty comes out. So I wonder how it'll be looked at honestly in the uh, future here. Now, Evan wraps up with, I don't understand the return of the X-Factor costumes either. Perhaps Death Warp Deathbird called on uh, Laundry Day, but I was happy to see them. And yeah, for folks who haven't read X-Men number 17, for some reason... Scott and Jean were in their old X-Factor costumes. Haven't the foggiest idea why. Uh, maybe that'll make sense. Um, I, I couldn't tell you. Uh, but like Evan, I was happy to see them because uh, those stories are, are kind of in my wheelhouse. So it was neat to see the callback. I just wish we had an explanation as to why. Maybe we will. Maybe we will somewhere down the line. It'll be... It'll be the aha moment. It's like, oh, that's why they were in X-Factor costumes there. And, oh, that's why Jean was wearing the, uh, you know, the old Marvel Girl costume from the, the Neil Adams stuff there. Maybe it'll all make sense. Maybe everything here is leading to something deeper. And uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, thank you so much for, uh, for sending in your thoughts about that issue there, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, for anybody else who'd like to uh, join the show here and send in some thoughts, I would uh, love for you to do so. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You could shoot me a message on Instagram at 90sXmen, or you can shoot me an old-fashioned email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. See, one of the good things about this show going on hiatus until the books come in is uh, that we might be able to build up a decent mailbag again. So really looking forward to that. And also, uh, you know, it'll give folks the opportunity to catch up because this show comes out perhaps too often. <laughs> it's a very likely possibility. Um, now, for uh, blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show and let people know that it uh, it exists. It's a thing in the world uh, that... Uh, they may hate, they may love, but uh, it's here for them if they want it. But that's all I got to say for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing some of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.